but, but God has just been so good and so faithful in providing everything that is needed. He's a faithful God, isn't he? Mighty God. Amen. Now I'm back into this message. Why? Why? Why now? Have you ever thought about that question? Um, it says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But God never gave us a date, a year, or a time in which Jesus would come. And that Christmas is a reflection of the time in which Christ was born and, and would come as a child. Come as a baby. Born of a virgin. And my question had been as I was preparing this message, why now? Why now? Why now? And I think we have to look into scripture to try to discover that answer also. And I don't know, and, and, and I want you to know right up front, I don't really have the answer per se. But I think some of the things that scripture will share with us today will give us a leading up to it. Give us a little bit more understanding why God sent his son at the time in which he sent him. Just give us a little bit more light on it that we might understand it just a little bit better. And in doing that, we have to understand just a little bit about history. Because God did send his son. In Genesis 3.15, he had already promised that he was going to send his son. And that his son would crush the head of the serpent. He had made that promise to us. Very early. Even before Adam and Eve put out the garden. He shares with them. Genesis 3.15. That Christ would come one day. But then I asked the question, why so long? Why so long, Lord? And when you look in Genesis 6, you'll see that the Lord says, boy, all that he sees in the heart of men is wickedness. All that he sees in the heart of man is wickedness. The promise of Jesus coming thousands of years before he was born. Why so long, Lord? Why not send him just a few years after you put him out the garden? You know that men are wicked. You know men are sinful. You know men need a Savior. Why not send him? Right after you put Adam and Eve out the garden a couple of years, they've learned their lesson. Let us go back into the garden. Why? Why now? Why? Lord, why not after the flood? Why not after Noah? You wiped out all the people except for Noah's family. Why not send him right now to get us straightened out? Send someone to really teach Noah that the generation following might have this information. Why not then, Lord? Why not? Why not? After you named Israel 
to be your chosen people. After you bought them out of Egypt. Lord, wouldn't that have been a good time to send the Savior? Wouldn't that have been a good time for Jesus to come and and teach his people? Why not, Lord? Why not then? Why not come after giving the law? Lord, you have written your law on the stones and given them to Moses, given them to your people. Lord, this is a good time to come because you can really educate your people now about the law. Right now, Lord, good time. But the Lord waited. In Matthew 1, 20, 21, he says, because he will save his people, When you read that story of Joseph, and Joseph is doubting about if he should marry marry or not because she was found pregnant with a child before the actual marriage had taken place. The last part of the Jewish marriage where they would unite. Here she is pregnant. And it takes an angel to come and to explain to Joseph, this is not of man, this is of God. And that he's coming with a purpose. He says, to save his people. And the question would have to be, from what? Okay, Lord, you're sending him now to save his people, but from what? And that's one of the things we're going to look at. From what? And I think it's still valid today. That God has to save us from what we're going to look at. He has to save us. And then God gets very specific when he gets into Luke. Especially where he says, Today in the town of David, a Savior is born. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today, today, a Savior is born, today. Why at this time, God? Why not rather after the fall? Why not after Egypt? Why not after the giving of the law? Why not after Noah? Why this day? And when you catch Matthew... And Malachi is strange. Because when Malachi closes in four, I believe we will find some of the reasons why we have what God calls and what historians call and theologians call 400 years of silence. For in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews 1, that yes, in the days of old, He spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ, starting with New Testament. Matthew. But in the Old Testament, it was the prophets, Malachi. 
And now we hear 400 years of nothing. God never says a word. For 400 years, never sent a prophet. Never speaks. Never says a thing. Why? Why? Why is it that brothers and sisters won't speak to each other for years? Why is it that a mother and father may not speak to a child, a son, or a daughter for years? Why is it that relatives won't speak to each other sometimes for years? Why is it? Because something has happened that has caused one of the parties to be silent. Something has taken place that says, they're not interested in me. Something's taken place that says they don't want to hear from me. Something has taken place that says they really don't even care about me. And it becomes then a silence from that individual or from that party that feels that they've been forgotten about or they're not cared for. They're not loved. They're not appreciated. They're not accepted. Between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the New Testament book, Matthew, we have these 400 years of silence from God. Not a word. But what's going on? Some things in history that is taking place. And there's a lot more than these, but these are the highlights. Especially in the area where Jesus is going to be born. Especially in this area of southern Asia and so forth. In this area of Mesopotamia and so forth. Things are taking place yet. We know that the Persian Empire is on their way down. Why? Because Alexander the Great is defeating them. And somehow we begin to pick up there during those 400 years or so. Because, see, from the time the Persians set Israel free from Babylonia, they ruled. And then came this young man called Alexander the Great. We all know his name. What we don't know oftentimes is Philip, his father, who began to build Mesopotamia, who began to build the Greeks, and so forth, who begin to build the culture of the Greeks. We don't know much about Philip, or we don't have, because we look at Alexander the Great. We don't look much at his father, but it's good to look at his father to tell more about the son. And Alexander the Great comes on, and somewhere between age 30 and 33, Alexander the Great, he dies. What does he die of? Syphilis. He was one of those that went both ways. He loved women, men, loved everything. His five generals, and oftentimes we only know the last four or three, after he died, they split up his kingdom, but they began to war with each other. And for about 40 to 60 years, they warred with each other. And it finally got down to about four of them or three of them. But the most successful ones was Seleucius. He was the one that the Roman army, he had passed, but his children, his son, was still overseeing his dynasty, his empire. 
And he ruled from approximately from 312 to 64 B.C., the dynasty that he set up. In 64 B.C., the Roman army destroyed the last of Alexander the Great, last general stronghold or dynasty or empire. The general defeating them from the Romans was Pompey. And he defeated them. Oftentimes we think of Israel being invaded by the Roman army. And they were not invaded. The Roman army was invited in. They were invited in to protect Israel from some of the tribal people of that day who were constantly stealing and constantly having little wars with Israel. And the strange thing about this is this. The reason the Roman army came over to help Israel is because Herod's father, Antipater, gave him troops to help him defeat Egypt. Now catch that picture for a moment. You're going to give the Israelites over to the Roman army to help defeat Egypt. And because of that, Antipartus became a citizen of Rome, which becomes part of Herod's line, that puts Herod the Great in line to talk with the emperor in Rome and have some type of a stature there in Rome. And Herod the Great at this time then begins to pick who will be the high priest. And sometimes the high priest was not Jewish. And then they begin to war about who's going to be high priest. So you have one brother kill another brother that he might be high priest. And the high priestly position has become like a lot of pastors' position. It's nothing but a wealth thing. How much money are you going to pay me? How much money will I get? How much money will I get out of this thing? Became the position of the high priest because it became a wealthy position to hold. And Herod then built temples because he wanted to be in favor with the Romans. But understand this Herod was more of a Hellenistic person, he was not totally Jewish, he was a half breed. He had a Jewish background, but He was also a mixture. We have another one in the Bible like that, Timothy. But he fell in love with the Hellenistic view. So when we get into Acts 6, we read about the Grecian Jews. It's the RSV that talks about the Hellenistic Jews and call them Hellenistic. Hellenistic is simply that which is of a Greek culture. Greek thinking. So we got the high priest office all out of whack. We got the ones who should be teaching all out of whack. 
They're stuck on something else other than the law and the word of God in the Old Testament. They've kind of like lost their way like we've done today. We've lost our way. We don't know what to believe. We don't know what to hold on to. We don't know what to treasure. We don't know if God's word is really God's word anymore. We've got to have something new and something different. Also during this 400 years of silent years, we have what we call Daniel's time of abomination and desolation. Because in the temple, a statue of Zeus was set. In this time, we have what was called the Maccabean Wars. Judas Maccabean. During this 400 years of silence. The Catholics have the Maccabeans. First Maccabeans, second Maccabeans in their Bibles and so forth. That tells a little bit about this war and the fighting that took place between 40 and 60 years between the Maccabeans and the Romans in the early days as they came in. But Judas Maccabean was not the one who started it. Matthias started it. Matthias was a priest. And what took place is simply this. When somebody, they saw the Roman general, the Roman person coming in and saying he wants a sacrifice to Zeus. And one of the Israelites come up with a pig or whatever for the sacrifice. And Matthias took his sword and killed him, slayed him, and then killed the ambassador for Rome. And him and his five sons began to battle with Rome. And Judas Maccabee picks it up. But the abomination a desolation took place in 168 B.C. There's a lot that takes place in this 400 years that God watched man kill themselves. God watched one nation rise and another rise and defeat them and take them out. And at the same time, watching his people being destroyed. At the same time, watching his people leaning on something else other than him. Watching his people call upon somebody else for help other than him. Watching Israel depend upon Rome to be a protector rather than him. And what we want to look at, if we can, in Malachi here a little bit, is the culture, the mindset. Because, again, the silent years begin after the prophet Malachi. Could he give us some insight into why God became silent, became quiet? If I can stir your heart a little bit. I'm a firm believer in this, and I'm not saying this is what you have to be. Because God is alive, I believe God still wants to speak to his people. He speaks through his word. He speaks through our subconsciousness. He speaks. I don't know if we really want to listen today. I don't know if we really want to hear his voice. 
Yes, I understand what the psychiatrists talk about being schizophrenic. I understand all some of the stuff about people being de- depressed and hearing different voices. But God's voice is very clear. And I believe God still wants to speak to his people. And it begins in getting into his word. If you're not willing to read his letters and search out his love letters to you, you'll never hear his voice. It starts there. But what was this culture like? What was the mindset of the people like? What were they doing that would cause God to be silent for 400 years? In Malachi chapter 1, I think he begins to just share a few things with us in this last book. And we're just going to go from 1 through 4 with some verses here of Malachi. And what we want to look at is what may have caused God to be quiet. Again, I want to remind you, what would you do or what kind of action would you have to do to cause somebody to withdraw from you? To be quiet. Not to say anything to you. And then I want you to ask the question also. As the scripture said, today, in the city of David, a Savior is born. Why would God send his son that day? In Malachi 1, verses 4 through 8, we have lost the ability to worship. Israel lost the ability to really, truly worship the living God. And I believe today in America, we're losing that ability to really worship and serve the Lord. Because today in our society, very few people go to church. We have more churches being closed than any other institution today. Or we may see a few mega churches. But more of the smaller churches are closing. And people are going to discover one day they're not going to have a place to really go. So already in our group, we've started what we call house churches in Cleveland. And we got house churches going in Youngstown. We got house churches because it's costing too much to build buildings, costing too much to buy land, costing too much to do these other things. So we're already starting to move that way. Because we're seeing it. The insurance on a building, the medical part in a building, paying for the staff in a building is getting outrageous. And we're losing our ability with people that people really want to come in and worship the Lord. We come to church for many other things. We come to church to find a boyfriend. Come to church to find a girlfriend. Come to church to see who's best dressed. Come to church to do some yelling. Come to church to have a name. Come to church to I'm on this committee. I'm on that committee. Come to church to see who's who. We come to church for everything but Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ. And we lose the ability to truly worship him. And Malachi, pick up with me in verse 4. Listen to what he says. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
They may build, but I will demolish. God says, every time you think you build, I'm going to tear it down. Because of the heart. Because of the heart. He says, they will be called the wicked land. What kind of title is that? How would you like somebody to brand you as the wicked person? The wicked individual. And every time people would see you talk about they would say, that's the wicked individual. That's the wicked lady. That's the wicked man. He said, I'm going to call them the wicked land. That title speaks loudly. And he goes on and he says, They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. Always under the wrath of God. Not under his blessing. Not under his mercy. Not under his forgiveness. But under his wrath. It's like living in a desert land. One of the reasons, again, if God's not going to say anything, because his wrath is saying his anger is being poured out. For 400 years of silence. And he goes on and he says, You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, follow me in six. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, God says, where is my honor? If I'm the creator, if I'm the one who's given you life, if I'm the one who allowed your mother to birth you, if I'm the one who set you in your mother's womb, and for nine months, it's not mom who took care of you, I'm the one who took care of you. I formed you, I shaped you for nine months. And then allowed you to come down what is called that birth canal into life. He says, if I'm the father, Where's my honor? Where's my respect? Because now you got a people who no longer honor God. You got a people that no longer respect God. You got a people who have no need of God. And the question is, even for a lot of young people today who will answer this, who will ask it, where's my daddy? They'll ask the question, but there's no respect for daddy. Where's my daddy? But there's no honor for daddy. Why? They don't know him. And here's a generation of people that don't know God. God knows he's the father. But they really don't know it. And his question to them, where's my honor? Where's my respect as a father? And he goes on, he says, If I am a master, where is the respect? Do me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, all. That's the pastors of today. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, 
How have we shown contempt for your name? You placed the foul food on my altar. In other words, you were robbing. You were getting all the best. And I was getting the second, third best. And pastors got to be careful of that. That they don't get the best from the people and God get the leftovers. And he said, you were giving to me those type of animals that were defiled. And he says, by saying to the Lord's table, is contemptible when you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Try giving them to your king. What you're offering me, take it and give it to those who rule over you on earth. See if they accept it. But in worship, we somehow step down and we give God our second best while we give the world our very best. We can give the world the best of our time. If we got to be at the job at 6 in the morning, we'll be there. But don't say be at the church at 6 in the morning. If the job say two hours over, oh, you're right. How much is that going to be? But boy, don't let church run 15 minutes over. We'll give the world our very best and then bring God our second and third best. And in doing so, we lose the ability to really worship God as God has ordained us to worship Him and to really see Him and to know Him. So the people had lost their ability to worship. The people had lost their ability to sacrifice and give to God. People have lost their ability to honor God. People have lost it. So when you go into chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, Boy, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord, Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I will cause your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Catch that. You won't listen to me. You won't even hear me. So why should I keep speaking to you? Because I'm looking at my cell phone. I'm doing my texting. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'll do everything else but listen to who? To God. I do it all. And the whole process is that it shows a disrespect to God. And God says, where's my honor? See the reality of this even in church? We dishonor him. We dishonor Him. Because the things that we do in the presence of God, we would not do it if we were having an interview with somebody for a job. We wouldn't let the person sit on the other side of the desk interviewing us what we're doing. We wouldn't let somebody who is our boss per se be giving us instruction and we're on the phone. Come on now. 
We wouldn't let somebody else be telling us, you need to be at work at 6, but I'm going to tell you, oh, I'm not going to come to 8 because i got my TV program to watch right now. And he says, your heart is not for me. Oh, yeah, you come into my temple. Yes, you come into my house. You come to so-called worship me. But what isn't right is the heart. The heart. You're here in body form, but where's the heart? He says, yes, the mouth can say this and the mouth can say that, but the heart is far from me. And he says, the heart. You don't honor me with your heart. You don't really love me with your heart. Oh, we love to get from God. When we are in need, we love to call upon his name. Begging him to do something. But our heart is not after him. Our heart is not desiring to know him. Our heart is not desiring to live for him. We're going to live for ourselves. We're going to please ourselves. We're going to do our own will. And he simply says, You have not set your heart to honor me. Catch that. Because here's an awesome mighty God who can open the waters up. Here's an awesome mighty God who has created the tall oak tree. This is a mighty awesome God that has formed the mountain, set the stars in place, the sun in place, the moon, and the only thing He don't control is man. And he says, you have not set your heart. It's not that I can't make your heart, but I didn't make you that way. I gave you free will. Because I wanted you to love me for who I am. But you have chosen not to set your heart towards me. Big difference. And since you don't want to listen, and your heart's not after me, I'm gone for 400 years. Let's see how you make it. And he says to them, your heart is not after me. When you get to verses 2, in chapter 2, verses 7 and 9, he says that even the priests had turned the people away. For he says, he says, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. A pastor's lips ought to have knowledge, ought to have wisdom. The main thing about a pastor should be this, that he teaches the Scriptures the Word of God. It is not about making you happy. It's not about making you joyful. It's not about making you feel good. It's not about making you jump. It's about bringing truth to the mind and to the heart. And you rejoice over the truth of the Word of God. You rejoice over what you see God do in your life because He set you free. 
And if you desire to know the truth, the truth will set you free of any addiction. The truth will set you free of any sin. The truth will set your feet upon the right path. The truth will. But you got a desire to know truth. And the thing about the pastor, he should have knowledge about the truth, the word of God. And it says, boy, for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth, men should seek instructions. Instructions on how to live. Instructions about marriage. Instructions about the home and raising of children. The instructions about your finances. Your instructions about how you work and how you relate with your fellow man. Instructions for living under the rule of God. But he said, you don't want to listen. You don't want to hear. So I'll leave you alone for 400 years. And for some of us, God has left us alone. And every time we turn around, we say this little thing. Every time I try to make it or I try to get ahead, I don't understand why I'm not moving. Ask yourself this question. Has God left you alone? Has God moved? If you want to really have success, know God. Know God. And put your plans before him. Put your dreams before him. Let him open the doors of life for you. Minister. Allow him to minister to you. Allow him to walk with you. Allow him to show you the way and the plans he has for you. Allow him to begin to educate you in a different way than what the world educates you. Allow God to speak to you. And he goes on, he said, yeah, they should give instructions because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. He's been called, he's been chosen to be able to declare the truth to God's people, to minister to God's people, to serve God's people. The word priest is to serve. It's to serve. It's to serve. Pastors are ordained to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And we got to get that right again. Because too often pastors and churches are being looked to be served and not to serve. And he goes on and he says, But you have turned from the way. Now look what happens when he says, They have turned from the way. When you turn from the way, when a pastor turned from the truth, when the pastor turned from preaching the word of God, what does he have? Nothing but some fables and tickling of the ears, nothing but a song that is empty. He really has nothing to give to the people or to instruct the people with. And it says, they have, but you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. So they're teaching something, but they're not teaching God's word. They're not giving instructions from God. Something's being taught and it's a demonic teaching because why? It's not in the things of God. It's not in the things of God. 
And he said, you cause my people to stumble. You cause my people to fall. You cause my people not to live successfully in my eyesight. You cause my people to be less than what I called them to be. And he goes on there and he says, you have violated the covenant. You've broken the covenant. When somebody breaks their married vows, what happens to the other person usually? They separate a little bit. Or there's that quietness for a little bit. When a husband or wife is unfaithful to one or the other, there's that time of just quietness. There's that time that you somewhat lose that intimacy. There's that time that you separate. There's that time you don't know what to say because you don't know if they'll really be heard or not. And yet the one person wants to hear something, but nothing's being said. And there's God. You don't want to hear my instructions. You don't want to hear how to live. You don't want to live and honor me. You don't want to seek me with your whole heart. You don't want to run after me. You don't love me. You broke my covenant. I'm silent. Are you catching the picture a little bit? Can you see us in that today, America? Can you see our families in that position today? Can you see our young folks? Because see, the word said we pass it down from generation to generation that have lost it because one generation has not now passed it on to another generation. And he says, look at what takes place in 217. And we've done that in our churches. You can come in church and you can sit very comfortably with your live-in boyfriend or live-in girlfriend. You can come in church very comfortably and we know that you're on drugs or you're an alcoholic or you have a profane mouth. You can come in church and ladies, not just talking about you, but you can come in church and the pastor need to do this because the dresses are too short. And boy, when you look out there, you hate to see sometimes what you see. We have no shame. We have no shame. And he says, boy, you'll walk up to a lady knowing the skirt is up here and the basketballs are ready to pop out the hoop. And, 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 and boy, I mean, you got the whole thing there going on. And you'll tell them, oh, you look good, honey. Rather than saying, well, better not say that. But <laughs> come back to verse 18 there. He says, And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between those who serve God and those who do not. Why does he say that? Come back down with me into verse 15. And this is why it's good to bring your Bible. If I can't instruct you out the Bible, there's nothing for me to say. He says in verse 15, But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly, the evildoer prosper. And even those who challenge God escaped. Come back up now. Let's put it all together here for a moment. 
Come back up verse, verse 14. Because, see, when you begin to dress a certain way and you look a certain way and you're out of tune and you're more like the world than you are, like the scripture define you to be, look what he says. You have said it is fruitful to serve God. In other words, what you've said, it's, it's a waste of my time to be in church. It's a waste of my time to pray to this God who don't listen. It's a waste of my time to get into the word of God and study. It's a waste of my time to be in fellowship with saints of like-mindedness. It's a waste of my time to even think about God. Why? He can't do anything. He did. He, he can't do anything. He don't even exist. It's just an imagination of my mind that people trying to play with my mind that there's a living God. And he says, you said it's fruitful. You have said it is fruitful to serve God. What do I get out of it? What do I gain? See, it's not about what you gain. It's about knowing him. And once you know him, it's not about the blessings. It's not about what he gives you. It's just about him. But see, there are those who say, it's not worth being a Christian because what do you get out of it? I know more hypocritical Christians. They lie, they cuss, they drink, they party. Well, that's true. But that's not the real Christian. Because there's a lot of Christians who have given the things of the world up and doing all they can do to walk holy and upright and to live the way God has ordained them to live and who believe this word above all else. And they believe all their blessings come from God. They believe that every good and perfect gift cometh from heaven above. They believe that God opens the door and closes the door. They believe that the food that's on their table that they have prepared, that God has blessed them with. And they believe the shelter that they have, God has provided. And whatever wealth they may have, they realize they are stewards of God and it's not really theirs. And he says, you say it's fruitful. And there's many people today will not serve God because they say, what, a, what good? If I go to church every Sunday, if I do this, what am I going to gain out of it? If you never receive one thing here on earth, but you can spend eternity with God, you received all that you ever needed to receive. But most of us can't think past our present time and we get caught with that I got to speed up a little bit in Malachi 3 5 with all our wrong we have no fear for him can you see that in our culture today that boy we can do all this sin we can do all these things that are wrong and against God we can cuss out anybody we can steal from anybody we can sleep with anybody we can do this and we can do that and guess what I have no fear of God He's not going to do anything. So in 3.5 he says, So I will come near to you for judgment. 
I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defame labor, who defraud labor of their wages, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not, catch this part here, but do not fear me. They don't fear me. They don't fear me. I'm going to give you 400 years of Alexander the Great. I'm going to give you 400 years of the Roman Empire and the Egyptian powers and the Indian powers. I'm going to give you 400 years of man's power and rule that's going to butcher you, that's going to destroy you. This day, a Savior is born to you in the city of David that can prevent all of these things. This day, a Savior who can change your heart from all these things. This day, a Savior is born. And in 7-9, God is not worthy of our giving. And then when you look at third, Malachi 3, 14-15, the fruitfulness again, and the evil doing in 4-1. But let's close up with Timothy. I'm not going to hold you long. But I want you to really grasp what Paul says here. Can you see the picture why God became silent after Malachi? Can you see the picture of the people and what all the people were involved in? What the people were doing? Understand this. We do have to work. We do have to be busy in life. We do have to provide for our families and so forth. But in all this doing, where's my time with God? In all of my doing, where's my time with God? Where's my service to God? In all my busyness, where's my service to God? Timothy, 15 through 17 with me. Because Paul just opens up a new door here. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance or importance of every individual to really look at. To study it. To see it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Can you see the sin that we just talked about? Can you see the hearts of the people who have supposed to have known God, who are supposed to be the witnesses for God, who are supposed to have been a holy nation unto God? Can you see where they are at that point? Can you see where you are? Can you see where America's at? Can you see why God is silent in the lives of some people? 
and why God may be silent today even in America. And he says, boy, to save sinners of whom I am the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his unlimited patience. I want to stop at that word. 400 years of silence. And then in the city of David, a Savior is born. 400 years of patience. 400 years of allowing his creation to do whatever it wanted to do. Giving you time in life to, as some folks would say, sow your wild oats, do your thing, do whatever, showing off, doing whatever it is. And yet God was patient. And then in the fullness of time, after God, after man had exhausted his evilness and his wickedness, of hurting one another, sends forth his son, born of a woman. And he says, his patience, God is long-suffering that none should perish. And he goes on and he says, boy, and an example for those who would believe that God would send someone now who would be an example to us. Correct all that junk that we read about in Malachi. Teach us how to worship. Teach us the purpose of the temple and how the temple should be used to teach us how the church ought to be used to the glory of God. How the people of God should be used for His glory and for His praise. To change the hearts of the people. Not only would He just teach us, but He would be an example to us. That we might know. And he goes on and he says, An example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now the king eternal, and this is the part for all. If you can get into this just for a moment mentally and just sit and just think about it just for a moment. He says, Boy, now to the king eternal. Our God is what? Eternal. Immortal. No beginning. No end. Eternal. Immortal. No beginning. No end. Always was. Always is. He is. And look what else he says here. Invisible. Invisible. The invisible God. But yet he who was invisible became visible in Jesus Christ. He who was invisible put on flesh and clothed himself in humanity that he might be seen of man. So when Philip asked over in Luke 10, Oh, show me the Father. He says, Philip, have you been with me so long? For he who has seen me have seen the Father clothed and wrapped in human flesh. But you've seen the Father in me. Invisible, now visible in Christ. The only God. Just one God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God. 
one God we serve. And he says, to be honored. What would they do over there in Malachi? They wouldn't honor him. But now God's raising up a people who will what? Honor him. Honor him how? From the heart. Give him respect and reverence him from the heart. Not because of what he gives them, but because of what they know of him. We honor him and glory forever and ever. Amen. E.V. Hill, one of his last messages, made this statement. The reason every time the angels, when they bow down and say holy, every time they come up, they would see a new glory of God. They would see something different about God. And they had to go right back down and say, oh, hallelujah, praise you, Lord. Amen. And when they rise back up again, they see another glory, another aspect of God. Had to go right back down and glorify it. Rise up and see another glory, another praise, and go right back down. He is a God that is glorified. He's a God that changes now, but we'll never know all that He is. And He says, where's my honor? Where's my honor? Where's my honor? You can read those other two verses, but if you really get into that last part there with Timothy, it will just unravel your mind. The invisible God becomes visible. The immortal God comes here on earth and suffers for us. And he is the everlasting God. He is the only God. There is no other God. He's the only one. And he wants to teach us. He wants to instruct us. And that's why he sent his son on this day. Today, a Savior is born for you and for you and for you and for me. A Savior was born for us. Amen. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And your word, Lord, when it just unfolds itself to us, what a blessing it is. That, Lord, we as your people can become excited about your word and who you are. It's not about being excited over the pastor and what the pastor said, but the one in whom the pastor points to. The one in whom your word declares you. For you're the one who deserves all glory, all praise. You're the one, O oh God, that we look to. And you're the one, Lord, that holds our dreams in your hands. Help us to realize that, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, that, Lord, that we are a people who should see Jesus Christ as our Savior. We are a people, O oh God, that are not so interested in giving gifts as it is to receive the unspeakable gift into our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ. If all of us in this room, if none of us receive not one gift for Christmas, we have received the greatest gift of all. We know Jesus Christ. And we are rich, Lord, simply because of the relationship we have with Christ. Let us hold that dear. Let it be precious to us. Let it be meaningful to us. 
that you sent your son at that exact time that we might have a Savior who would be able to change our hearts, who would be able to instruct us and teach us the things of God. And may we, O God, be a people who desire to learn from you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we want to give you that opportunity. And you can do it right where you are.